I remember when, when Brendan Rodgers was being linked with Arsenal, and I think he quite liked the fact that he was being linked with Arsenal, and he told me after the game to ask him about it. If it was a football player or a, or a manager or you know, someone in rugby or whatever, whenever they came to speak to me, they were stepping into my domain, you know, and that was, that was, that was my house, if you like, and that kind of gave me confidence, you know. Um, if I walked on the training field, I would feel weird because that's their domain. I always felt when I had the mic in my hand and was asking questions, that was where I went to work. Welcome to the How You Say It podcast with myself, Graham Kildewa, a podcast that dives into the depths of understanding communication in all walks of life. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. Welcome along to another episode of the How You Say It podcast with myself, Graham Colgar, and I am joined over Zoom with a sports news correspondent for BBC Scotland, Chris McLaughlin. Chris, how are you? I'm good, Graham. Thanks for having me on. Um, how are you? Oh, very well. I'm, I'm really, really excited for this conversation. I, it's nice to see you. I can see you over Zoom, um, but I'm so used to just hearing you over my car radio speakers. <laughs> so it's it's actually getting to see the, the face behind the voice. Very much face for radio, as I've been told many, many <laughs> So yeah, ah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's it's great to speak to you, and, and one of the things that we like to talk about here is, uh, you know, is a is a communications based podcast. So, uh, talking all about your career and also your lessons that you've learned through communication in working in sport and and broadcasting. So, first things first, how did you get into sports broadcasting? Um, I would love to tell you. Graham, that it was something that I wanted to do from a young age, but it, it really wasn't. I mean, I was always a sports fan uh, growing up. There was, we played a lot of sports as kids. Um, we went along to watch primarily football, but we played a lot of golf as well. So um, I lo- always loved sport, um, but it, it wasn't really something that was on my radar in terms of a job, to be honest with you. And in, and in all honesty, even journalism um, wasn't really... Um, on my radar that much latterly yes so basically I left school not really knowing what I wanted to do um I knew I was okay at English I was okay at art geography things like that um so I did a communications course uh at HND at Bell College um I think it's now the University of the West of Scotland or it's part of that anyway so I did that and as part of that course um there was a journalism section and I just found instantly that, that that I was gravitating towards that so I kind of knew quite early on that that I kind of wanted to go down that road um there was obviously PR and marketing and stuff like that as, as well uh, within that that course but I was really drawn towards the journalism so I thought at long last I found something that I actually <laughs> that I want to do um so I kind of made up my mind up to to do a bit of travelling after that and apply for for university at Napier. Mm-hmm. They, they, they still do a journalism course, one of the best courses actually in the country uh, at Napier in Edinburgh. So I applied for that, got in, um, and while I was there, uh, I got friendly with a guy who was a DJ at a, a radio station in Paisley called QFM. Um, QFM, then it was Q96 I think it's now Nation Radio anyway so I kind of hung around a little bit in, on the weekends and, and I started doing things like travel bulletins and you know I had no idea about broadcasting, I had no idea about that kind of business at all, I had no interest in it really 
Um, but then he started saying, well, why don't you why don't you start doing some weekend shifts reading out the news? I was like, well, you know, that's, that's fine. I, I'd love to do that. So it, it was a small enough station where you could everyone kind of got a chance and I got to know people. And before I knew it, I was reading out the, the, the weekend news bulletins and QFM and Paisley. And um, they were also at that stage looking for someone to cover St Mirren games. All right. Go and gather audio from St Mirren games. And that sounded just perfect to me. You know, I wasn't getting paid for it, but, you know, I was thinking this might lead to something. And um, so I, I used to go along and, and interview. Tom Hendry was the manager at that point. Um, and that was that was quite a, an early schooling in in. <laughs> in <laughs> Maybe, maybe come to that later but um so yeah I did that for a while and then a job came up at uh, the sister station of, of that radio station and it was a, a station called Scott FM which later became real radio um so I got a, a full-time sports reporter job um at Scott FM and then was there for I think three years and then they were bought over by real radio. So I moved to uh, Real Radio. They were sort of based in the east end of Glasgow. So I worked with guys like Ewan Cameron. He started at the same time as me. Alan Ruff was there. Um, Ruth Davidson. Whatever happened to yeah. Ruth Davidson? She was uh, she was there as a reporter as well. So some really some really really good people. So um, I was there until two thousand and four. And the way it works in the sports. Um, the sports broadcasting, sports reporting uh, beat in Scotland is really quite small. You get to know all of the reporters. So I got to know quite a lot of the BBC guys um, back in those days. Kerradine uh, is still there. Kerradine uh, Edson is still at the BBC. I got to know him quite well. And a few other people like um, Alison Walker, who's now moved on, uh, Rona McLeod. And they told me that there was a job coming up in the BBC. Uh, jobs don't come up very often there. Um, so I went along, put my best tie on, and uh, I spoke some nonsense for a couple of hours to um, to the guys there, and I got the job. And that was in two thousand and four. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just started off kind of doing similar things, reading out the bulletins and learning the trade, and then all of a sudden um, we moved on to things like TV, and and it just kind of snowballed from there, really. So that's it wasn't really a conventional way, in and and it, and it weirdly. It always kind of felt that doors just just opened for me at the right time. I think there was a there was a hell of a lot of luck involved for me. Um, so yeah, that's that that's how I got started at the BBC. Brilliant, brilliant. It really is interesting when you when you speak about that, Chris, about how putting yourself in these situations, you, you know, you've you've put yourself in a, a position to give up your time to read the, the the local news, and it's led on to the next thing, and on to the next thing, and on to the next thing. For people who are listening that maybe want to get into that and, and are probably doing that journalism course that you you're, you were on at Napier University, how important is that to to put yourself out into these local radio stations and give yourself the experience so that you can literally cut your teeth like you did with the, the St. Martin manager and interviews then? Yeah, it's crucial. And, and I think it's crucial more for, and, and I've done quite a few talks at universities lately, um, and there are all different kinds of personalities there, as you can imagine. That's just life. And I think it's probably more crucial um, for people who don't really naturally um, 
want to do that kind of thing and put themselves out there. And I, and, I, and I was very much that person. I wasn't really a massively confident, outgoing person. I'm still not really. Um, so it's probably that kind of stuff will come easier to, to some than others. But that doesn't always mean that those people make the best journalists. Um, so I would say that if there are people out there who want to go down this road, who aren't naturally extroverts and, and you know love being on the camera or love being on the mic, then it's still a job for you, there's no doubt, because I'm, I'm living proof that that's the case. Uh, I'm not a naturally outgoing person. I think I've grown into that more because of the job, because you kind of have to be. But no, I, I, think, I think you're right. You've got to look for opportunities. And what I always say to, to people who ask for advice is just speak to as many people as you can. You know, don't think that that there are too many people you can speak to. You can't and try and make a bit of an impression when you do speak to someone. And that doesn't mean going over the top and telling everyone how great you are, um, but just just listening and, and making a bit of an impression. So you're right. It's really, really key. <clears throat> and as much as I said that, that there was a lot of luck involved for me, and there was, I did I did push at the right doors and I, and I, I got to know quite quickly the right people to speak to and, and look for opportunities. So if you're going to be a good journalist, then you'll probably see these things anyway. But as I say, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be that outgoing personality that some people might think. Yeah, I heard on a, another podcast, someone defined luck as when opportunity meets determination. And I think if you're willing to put yourself in these positions, and, and as you even said, the really important thing is, is in these kind of networks, is you've mentioned the names of the people that you were kind of coming across in your journey and sometimes all it takes is one person just to say, there's an opening coming up at the BBC and, and if you're there and you, you, you're in with a chance of getting it and as you, as as what happened to you, you got it. So when you when you moved into working for the BBC, now obviously we've got the BBC Scotland up here which is still part of the British Broadcasting Corporation and things like that, but how big a jump or how big a difference did you see when you moved from these radio stations that you'd been working in previously to then moving into a massive corporation like the BBC? I remember very, very clearly sitting in the in the lobby, the reception area of BBC Scotland in Queen Margaret Drive, as it was then in Glasgow in the West End. I was really, really nervous, and I was sitting looking around, and they had all these pictures up of these famous people. You know, Jackie Bird was there, and various other BBC Scotland legends. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't really want this job. And I convinced myself that maybe this is big for me, maybe this is maybe this is too early for me. And in a weird way, I think it helped in the interview because I went in there thinking I've nothing really to lose. I like the job I'm doing, um, and I was really open and and frank with them. I was giving them a lot of ideas about what I thought they could do, which was probably quite cheeky of me at that age. Um, but I think that helped. So it was. It felt huge. It felt massive to walk into that building. You're in that industry and, you know, here, to me, that was always the pinnacle to, to work for the BBC um, and to be presented with that opportunity is quite scary. Mm. Um, and I did, I, I did really, I kind of shrank from it a little bit um, before the interview. But again, I think, I think that might have worked for me. But also, I would also say that when I did move in and, and, and start working there, I did feel very quickly that, that, it wasn't too big for me that, that the people I was working with were my peers and 
you know, I could do the job and um, I was keen to sort of prove myself quite quickly. So as much as before it felt like a huge jump, actually, and we'll probably get on to talk about this, journalism is journalism, you know, whether you're at the the Green Up Telegraph or, or you know, working for um, the New York Post, it's journalism, the basics of journalism are the same. So I kind of felt well equipped well equipped by that point to to to, um, to feel comfortable quite quickly yeah i mean it is what you say i mean it's it's an interesting concept when you say journalism it's the same you're still putting together stories and getting it out to people and i think that's hugely important and it's how you then package that up and get out were you at the bbc were you given sort of mentorship guidance and support or was it by the time you came in it was literally like right here you are you're ready to rock and roll out you go and start start reporting um, it was a bit of both, really. To be honest, there was there was people who that I'll always be thankful for um, and thankful to that they kind of took me under their wing a little bit, um, and I and I got quickly to know the people who I think that I could learn from quite quickly. Um, there was a fair bit of training, um, but there was also that that feeling of of yeah, you're kind of thrown in at the deep end a little bit. I remember the first time I was asked to go and do a, a live television broadcast. <laughs> and it was it was um, on the the 18th green at St Andrews, and the story was I, I can't remember exactly what the story was, but it was something to do with the RNA allowing women members um, for the first time, oh. and I was terrified, absolutely terrified, to the point where I memorized every single word. And anyone who works on live TV will tell you that's the worst thing you can do, um, because if if you if you forget something it can just throw you all over the place but I could probably just about recite that whole live uh, back to you right now because I memorize well so it was obvious nerves you know um but yeah going back to your question there was a little bit of training and a little bit of mentorship but nothing structured really the mentorship wasn't really structured you just kind of felt that um there was people that you knew would would look out for you and people you could learn from I mean that's it must be so nerve-wracking if you've got and it live as well so you know that this is it and I'm, I'm assuming you know that you've only got a certain amount of space that you've got to be able to fit everything and all the information you're into when it you talk about how you the way that you prepared for that one you know looking at it now how first of all how prepared or how much do you know about the story whilst before you go on for the very first time let's just say there's a big news story breaking right and you have to get there and and you've got a couple of hours, you've got to then sort of package all the information that you've got about that up. You know that you've got to try and hit the key points to try and get all the relevant information out, but you also know you've only got a segment of maybe, well, what would an average segment be for a, a, a big sports news story if you had to try and get that information over on the on the, on the the BBC News? Well, usually you would you would provide a package, what's called a, a, a television package, so that would be a, a, a short um, so sort of maybe two minutes, and then you might have like uh, thirty seconds before that you talk into that package. Maybe I don't know forty five seconds off the back of it. But if you were, if it was just a straight live with no package, maybe a minute and a half to two minutes. Yeah. So you've you've got to try and get all that information packaged up in a way that you can get that out clear, concise, without jumbling things up, so people aren't left watching their tellies going, what? There it is, actually there. I mean, how important is that preparation for you then? To, and, and and to be able to... How, how much do you have to work on that to be able to get everything condensed into that area so you're used to that? 
Yeah, you mentioned the word condensed, and that's that's crucial. And and you also said something about key points, and that's also crucial. Very very quickly, I think as a broadcast journalist, what you learn to do is to to cut out the rubbish and take out the key points because you do only have a certain amount of time. Like you know, recently I've been writing stuff for the website, and it's quite tricky because you actually have to reverse that and put more more things in. And I'm naturally, I was naturally always taught to to just deal with the key key points and um so like for example if a if a press release email comes in i can very quickly look at it and and within you know 20 seconds pick out the key points that just happens over time and it's the same thing with a with a live you 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 ask yourself what are the key points here what do people want to know um and then yeah it's just a case of of condensing i kind of tend to do it in bullet in my head do it in bullet points um and just do little paragraphs. But there's also, I think the, the key the key trick for live broadcasting, I think, is always knowing what you're going to say at the start and having a decent idea of what you're going to say at the end. Um, sometimes if you see people making a bit of a mess of, of a live broadcast, it's probably because they've not thought about how they're going to end it or they've forgotten about how they're going to end it. Um, in fact, I was listening to a really interesting uh chat with John Sopel, um, who was BBC's uh, North American correspondent for a long time, editor, I think. And he was talking about live um, live techniques and saying that, that, his, <laughs> that his fallback was always, if he got muddled up or forgot something, he would say, so what does all that mean to try and buy? <laughs> some time you know so I always try to look out for him saying that because I knew that that would be and I don't have I don't have one of those but I might use it one of these days but um yeah it's it's really just about not waffling knowing what the key points are and and getting an understanding of what the story is pretty quickly asking what your audience wants to what do, what do people actually want to know what are they going to be interested in what I'm saying what you know you know we're people journalists are just people as well so um, no matter what some people may think, um, and, and you know we're interested just as much as as the viewers. So I kind of always tended to ask myself, well, what would be interesting for me, and what would be interesting for for other people. So that's kind of the way I tend to do it. Yeah, it's. I mean, I'm going to keep an eye out for that. So what does this mean <laughs> time now as well? But I suppose that the, the really interesting fact about reporting on a story instead of telling a story is the fact that when you tell a story, you ha you have the beginning, middle, and end, so you build this story up to then the ending. Whereas for you, when you're reporting on a story, we usually all, you, you almost start with the ending as if because people know what the because as you're saying, we need to know what the news is, so you need to tell us right at the top of it. This is what the news is, and here's this chain of events that gets here, and then this is what that means. So how how. Is that is that trickier? Because if you, if you want to sit, if I want to tell you a story, I'm not going to tell you the punchline right at the end. I'm going to wait, build you up, and get the twists and things like that. Whereas if you're telling me a story, you're probably going to go, "Well, this happened, and then X, Y, and Z. This is because, and here's what it means." Yeah, that's true. But th there's also, you know, any good broadcast journalist, and for any journalist, will always tell you that any good story, even if you're reporting, it should have a beginning, a middle, and end, um, and it doesn't really matter what that means in terms of the story. It's just that as long as there's a narrative there, a, an obvious start, a middle and, a, and an end to it, even if it's just what I said about, you know, having a, a nice beginning and a nice end or a memorable end. Um, but yeah, it, it's, 
we're just storytellers. You know, we we are just the same. We're we're, we're just telling you a story, and as you say rightly, any good story does have a a beginning and a middle and an end. Um, I think that just comes with time. To be honest, uh, it's it's weird because it's not until you're asked these questions you really think about it because you just take it for granted. Um, but yeah, I think I think, for example, if I'm putting together a package for television, I always think about that. What what's what what's the story? What's the story? What's the beginning? What's the middle? What's the end? Sometimes that's more obvious than others. Um, but we we do tend to try and stick to that. I think. Yeah, it's, when you um, when you say about being being storytellers and things like that as well, it, it, with the impartiality of being a, a sort of BBC broadcaster, then how does that make it? Does that make it any more challenging? Where you have to, when you said about narratives and things like that, and also when you're telling the story, you know, there's emotion attached to it. Now we're talking about sports correspondence and also sport in Scotland, where it's very polarized and it's very difficult to, you know not have a, a, a say or an opinion or some kind of thought on it. So when you're doing these stories, you've also got to be very careful that when you're packaging it up, you've got to know as long as a story I'm, or a report that I'm putting out, it doesn't lean to this side or lean to that. Because anybody, Joe Bloggs in the street, if they tell you a story, they tell it from their point of view, their narrative, how they see it. Whereas from your point of view, your job's not to tell you from how you feel that way or how you think that should go. It's literally, here's the facts and this is how we're telling it, but still have to package it in a way that makes people compelled to listen and, and, and get the information. Yeah, I mean, we obviously have pretty strict editorial guidelines and, you know, I've, I've now been to BBC for, for, what, 19 years and I think it's pretty much ingrained in me that, that you have to be impartial and that's just the way we do our job. That doesn't mean to say that you can't, check yourself sometimes or that someone else might not check you from time to time and say, well, maybe, you know, should maybe have an, another contributor here talking about that to balance things up. But we're constantly thinking about balance. I think the tricky thing is, especially now, is that people expect you to have an opinion. You know, people people struggle. I think younger people now more, than, more and more struggle with the fact that the BBC doesn't and shouldn't have an opinion. Um, you know, let's not go too deeply into the, the Gary Lineker stuff, but we know what happened there. Mm. Um, so there's, it's, it's a really, really tricky one for the BBC because I think now more than ever, there has never been a greater need for an impartial broadcaster. And I firmly believe that and I firmly believe in the BBC. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I do firmly believe in it. But it's a tricky time because everyone is having their say. And when everyone is having their say, people are wondering why you're not having your say. Um, it, it's it's a little bit difficult, different for me because in correspondence, uh, the BBC now are, are, are for a long time been allowed to analyse things, so I can critically an analyse um, things. And that that strays quite close to opinion, um, but I always have to try, you know, bring yourself back from that. So that's quite tricky. But in terms of actually being impartial as much as possible. I, I've never really found that tricky, to be honest. Um, it's very easy to, 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 to balance a story most of the time. Um, but the one thing that I will say is that I don't know a BBC journalist that doesn't constantly check that and doesn't constantly think about impartiality because there is so much attention on that now. Yeah. Um, so it's it's... It's tricky and it will become increasingly tricky, I think, for the BBC. And I think it's probably asking itself what 
kind of broadcaster and what kind of corporation it wants to be going forward. And I think that's one of the main challenges. But for me, it's never been an issue. And some people will go to the dying day uh, telling you that I'm this or I'm that or I support that team or I support this team or I said this and I didn't say that. And, you know, while we all make mistakes, I would put my hand in my heart and, and take any lie detector test to tell you that I, I strive to be impartial all the time. Yeah, I mean, it is a, it's something until you're thinking about it, it must be, it's often taken for granted in, in that sense. But you're right in what you're saying about, the, you know, the, the the fact that people feel that there is a need for opinion to be passed on. Uh, looking at your your sort of career and you're seeing how you've moved and you're talking about that those those early days down in St Mirren at Paisley, cutting your teeth as an interviewer and, and things like that. Interview skills are a fascinating uh, aspect of it in sports. I mean, some of the greatest interviews you'll ever have seen, funny or car crash interviews, have been through sport when you've got such emotion involved and things like that. Well, if you look back at what you were like all those years ago in St Mirren as a young journalist, how would you see yourself then and, and what would you see yourself as now in, in that in that sense? That's a really interesting question. You know, I've never actually thought about that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> I was obviously pretty young and very wet behind the ears. Uh, I do remember my very early mobile phone ringing once when I was in the middle of a, uh, an interview with Tom Henry, the St. Martin manager, and he rightly scalded me for it. He was, a, he was a school teacher and I felt like a pupil when he did it. Um, but it taught me a valuable lesson never to have my mobile phone on. Um, and I did learn that lesson that day. I don't know. I mean, I sometimes find myself watching because uh, I'm looking for old footage uh, and I'll find myself watching old reports that I've done or and I and I do I think I wish someone had said to me back then to slow down a bit. <laughs> I also remember Peter Allen, the the legendary five live broadcaster. Mm. One of the best piece of advice he'd ever been given as a broadcaster was slow down. Um and it's okay to have pauses and to have silence on radio and TV. And it takes a bit of um it takes a bit of confidence to do that, I think. But that's probably something that you, if you listen back to to interviews I did back then, you pro- I was probably talking a million miles an hour, and I think probably saying too much. Yeah, I think the best um, interviewers are the are the people who are pretty sharp with it. You know, just ask short, sharp questions, but very much to the point. Um, you know, Jess Reeves at Sky was always very good at that. I thought he was, he was yeah. very. You never hear him waffle. You know, and I always kind of tried to make sure, you know, laterally when I started to think about it more that I wanted to ask the right questions and and ask it quite quickly. It, it still annoys me when I hear interviewers asking a question three times and taking themselves down a cul-de-sac and, you know, getting themselves in a bit of a fankle. So, uh, yeah, I would say probably that, probably slowing down a bit and just... I think it comes with confidence, you know, it comes with confidence and experience. And I always kind of felt laterally, although I don't do much pitch side stuff anymore, but I kind of always felt laterally that um, that if it was a football player or a, or, a, or a manager or, you know, someone in rugby or whatever, whenever they came to speak to me, they were stepping into my domain, you know, and it, that was that was that was my house, if you like. And that kind of gave me confidence, you know. Um, if I walked onto the training field, I would feel weird because that's their domain. 
I always felt that when I had the mic in my hand and was asking questions, that was where I went to work, you know. Um, and I think, again, that kind of comes with confidence and experience as well. But that would, I've said that to a few presenters as well down the line about, you know, guys who are quite new to it. Say, so like, you know, when you walk in there and the lights go on, it can be quite scary. But just remember, this is your job. This is your work. This is your domain. This is your house. And I think that's... Um, I think that's worth remembering, you know. That's a great ace up your sleeve, isn't it? If you can think like that. And as, as you said, with experience and the confidence in your ability, that that definitely does start to come a little bit more. Um, when you're when you're down at the pitch side, track side or anything like that, and you're waiting and you're standing with a manager or a player and maybe you're sensing off them. I mean, how important is your intuition to know how you start your questioning? Because we've all seen these ones where the journalist either starts to backtrack or there's a bit of a bit of a frostiness between the two or anything like that and for a tv watcher that's gold it's dynamite isn't it but for you you'll have to pick up on that body language and how they're being before you even start questioning them yeah and a lot of that has got to do with what's happening at the time you know in sport if the club's doing well or you know the manager's under pressure or the, the striker's not scoring or you know, the chairman's getting a hard time for the financial results. You know, you, you kind of get a sense of what they're going to be like. Uh, I suppose it's like that in most interviews and certainly politics as well. But, yeah, you, for example, if if you were doing post-match interviews, you knew if it was the winning manager, you could put the mic in front of their face most of the time and just let them go. Um, and it was all fine. The tricky part came when they didn't win. Um, and I've interviewed some... Some very very tricky individuals. Gordon Strachan springs to, uh, springs to mind, um, and he used to have this great trick where, and I've I've never I, I know Gordon quite well. You know, um, he's I've been in, in sort of social situations with him, but I never asked him actually, and I always meant to ask him. He had this trick where, when you were asking him a question, when you were in the middle of asking this question, he would pull faces. Now, we, you know, I can't obviously this is a podcast, but you can't see, but he would he would kind of look away and pull <laughs> funny faces and I always thought he was trying to put you off right. you know it, pulling the kind of faces as if to say that's a stupid question son um, and he was always tricky because you knew he had up his sleeve the ability to be um, combative combative <laughs> you know uh, there's various uh, clips of him on social media isn't there on YouTube of yeah. giving um, journalists a hard time and I was always quite wary of that and I had many a many a battle with him um but it also it also makes you it also makes you push on your toes you know um mm. there's certain managers that that you can as i say you can just put a mic in front of their face and away they go um john hughes was always one uh you just speak forever um you know jim jeffries was a classic as well you just you could get one you'd ask him one question it would go on for three minutes so that that presents different challenges but there's there was always guys that were a little bit trickier but i think as long as you as long as you're happy in yourself that your questions are fair and relevant again when, when i was doing the pitch side stuff for football i would always try to think as a football fan and think right okay the guys girls driving home what do they want to hear and I always thought that. I always thought, if I'm a football fan driving away from this game, what do I want to hear the manager talking about? And that kind of that kind of always guided me to the the questions that I felt were relevant. You know, when you're when you're about to prepare for that, then do you? If you're coming up, like you've mentioned a few managers there who you know you ask them one question and three minutes goes, 
by how much pre- preparation do you know about the questions in an order of how you're going to ask the questions because you'll see it sometimes where somebody maybe asks a question and then in their two and a bit minute waffle where they go on you're maybe looking down going oh, well that's them answered that question and then, and then oh, well they've just and then it's do i bring them back to that or do i, I, I how how difficult is it to go into an interview and would you recommend somebody to have set questions laid out or just topic points that they would like to have so that they can start to form questions around them yeah i always made a conscious effort never to write questions down um because i always and especially in pre-match and post-match football that's not strictly true sometimes there were bigger interviews that i did remember one i did with the with craig white after his um debacle at rangers i managed to secure quite a good interview with him in london and i had a, a list of questions that i wanted to make sure i got off so that's not strictly true but in general um you know like the weekend or after uh, matches i would always I, I never ever wrote questions down because i always wanted to try and keep it as a conversation rather than a than a kind of grilling you know i think it's and it's always really important to listen to what they're saying so if you've got questions written down and you're they're halfway through an answer and you start looking down you can miss something crucial and i always i always like to follow up on what they said as well you know so they actually know that you're listening to them and make that conversational and to be honest if if you know your stuff and you've been watching the game and you know the relevant points of what people want to know you shouldn't need that um so I would always I would say that if there's anyone coming in who's looking to do that, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't write questions down, not, not in that situation. It's also quite I think for the person being interviewed, it's also quite off putting, you know. You want to maintain eye contact with them and, and, and as I say, develop a conversation rather than being a, a kind of grilling, even sometimes it even if it sometimes turns into that. But no, I would I would very, very rarely write questions down. Well, when when you're looking at this situation then and, and you've got this manager and, and as I say, the, the big one that most people go to is the football interviews and football journalism and stuff like that. And you see it down in the English Premier League, you mentioned Jeff Shrees and there's people up in Scotland and you know even in Europe and things like that. Do you spend time consciously building a rapport with somebody you know that you're going to be regularly interviewing? And do you do that in terms of away from the interviews? Would you reach out to somebody to get a... So, so that maybe in that interview situation, they feel comfortable enough with you to be able to, you know, give you information that you maybe they know you would like and it would benefit for yourself as well. I tended not to do that. Um, I know that other journalists do do that and have done that in the past. I always felt that by doing that, you were compromising yourself a little bit. Um I know that, that, that some journalists want to be or, or seek a rapport or seek stories out by being friendly with and trying to be have a relationship with with people out with. And I never I never felt comfortable doing that because I just felt as though that was a step beyond professionalism. Um and if you know if you make friends with someone and you're in good terms, I've heard it before, by the way, if you're in good terms with someone and, and you have to ask them really difficult questions, then what does that look like? Mm. And I think that also your listeners, viewers, readers would really challenge that as well if they knew that that was the case, if you were really close with someone. So, no, I've seen lots of journalists trying to be friends with 
football players and football managers and and and, and the like. And I, I always tried to stay away from that. I mean, look, we would sometimes find ourselves at social events or or. You know, sometimes back in the day, you would end up on an aeroplane quite a lot with these guys on on your way to foreign trips, and you'd stand at the at the at the belt waiting in your suitcase and have a chat with someone, um, a manager or a player or whatever. But I never, I never consciously tried to make friends. I just thought that would be always really tricky to navigate that. Um, I'm not saying that's the right way. That was just always the way I felt. I know that other journalists do it now. That's different from. I think maintaining contacts, building and maintaining contacts. Yeah, you have to have a a certain level of um, a certain level of relationship with someone to, to 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 try and you know maintain a contact and understand what's happening. Although that's becoming more and more difficult yeah. these days because the media departments are very very keen to to keep journalists away from players, and I can understand that. Um, so that's a lot more difficult to do. Some of the old school managers, I think, were probably more open to that. Guys like like Walter Smith and, and Tommy Burns, um, two really really good guys. Walter Smith, especially, I, I was terrified of him <laughs> as a young reporter. I was always terrified, um, but he was always really fair, and I and I, I really liked him for that. You know, he would he wouldn't try and make a fool of you. Mm. And I know some managers have tried that in the past, but he was always really fair. Sometimes he was really firm. But I always found him really fair. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, I tried to stay away from that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can understand. I mean, we've all been there, especially myself as a football fan. And as you mentioned earlier on, you know, the guys and girls that are in the cars and the buses and the trains on the way home from the game, and you hear an interview, and you want to feel like you don't want to feel like, oh, he's not asking them the difficult questions because you know they're obviously pals or anything like that. And then of course that creates another narrative that that people say all oh, that you know and all these kind of things that go on uh, and people's minds can grow and grow and grow but at the same time like you say if you did become friendly with someone then asking them these difficult questions would become a problem it's interesting from the other side of it then because if there's people who are listening to this who maybe uh they're not journalists and they don't want to be in a journalist's shoes but maybe they're on the other side where journalists are asking them questions you mentioned like Walter Smith and 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 Tommy Burns and guys like that and and Jeff Shreves who we talked about already. He mentioned about you know sometimes Alex Ferguson wasn't daft in the sense where to to avoid a question being asked about one thing he would very quickly say but ask me about something else. So just before they would, the sky cameras would go live, he'd say just ask me about such and such, and suddenly it would throw Jeff Shreves well up. I mean, is that something that other people would do with yourself? You know, a little I'll throw you this, but keep keep away from that one if you know what I mean. Yeah, look, the, some of them, you always had a little bit of a conversation because I used to do live for, for BBC Radio Scotland and what would happen is that I would be down pitch side and the manager would come out and I would say to the producer, right, I've got, for example, Brendan Rogers, and you would always stand and have a, a chat, just a, a wee chin wagon, you know, no more than a few minutes. And you could always tell <laughs> if someone was trying to put you off the scent yeah. or... Um, I remember when when Brendan Rodgers was being linked with Arsenal, um, and I think he quite liked the fact that he was being linked with Arsenal, and, and he told me after the game to ask him about it. <laughs> Felt quite quite weird, um, but he was he was pretty good. I certainly think thought he was pretty good at, at um, uh, not manipulating because that's not fair. I always found him pretty fair, but I think he always uh, felt that that he had a way of of trying to be on top 
in an interview. Um, and I think that's that's quite that's quite crucial actually maintaining a kind of level of of um, control. Uh, you know, some people will always will try and control an interview, and it's always crucial that you control the interview, you control what's being said, you control the narrative. Not to the point where you're being Jeremy Paxman for the sake of it, because yeah. um, I've seen that as well, and that doesn't work. Um, but yeah, you 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 definitely got managers who who would say things beforehand, ask me this or ask me that, or what are you going to ask me, or make sure you don't ask me this. You know, there's the very famous Jim McLean, John Barnes. Yeah incident um, where he told John not to ask him about something and John did and he <laughs> ended up getting a, a punch in the nose. Um, thankfully I've never had that but uh, yeah it, it goes back to that point about relationships and how far you go and you do build up a you do build, build up a knowledge of, of how they're going to be with you and, and likewise they'll they'll understand what to expect from you and I always try to do that I always try to flip round um you know, trying to see it from their point of view as much as possible, um, and how would I be in their shoes at being asked those questions? And I think that's, I think that's quite that's quite key to it, to be honest, being able to see things from their point of view. Yeah, the control thing's an interesting one. Uh, as soon as you started talking about that, and you mentioned um, Jeremy Paxman and things, I, I was thinking about Mick Lynch uh, hmm. when when you suddenly look at the guy, and, and there was a few interviews where, and 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 I felt that at the time. I think some of the top people who were interviewing him felt like I'm going to go for him and I'm going to make sure he knows who I am. And a lot of the time when that happened, it was almost like it was a, they left themselves wide open to get caught out in that. If you are going into an interview where you've got somebody that you know, that you mentioned Gordon Strachan earlier on or, or even Brendan Rodgers and you're saying that I know what they're like, they want to have control of the interview. Is there an element of instead of having an arm wrestle, live on TV or live on the radio, is there a time when you sometimes go, I'm going to let them have the control because I don't want to end up being the one trying to force them, my control over them. And almost by giving them their control, it almost makes you the powerful one because you're able to release, relinquish that and not get into that. Like yeah, said, that's the point. I hadn't really thought about it that way. You might be, you might be right. Um, I did once end a, a conversation, an interview with Gordon Strachan, really early once because he was just being so obtuse um, and and I, he would say it himself I'm sure if he was sitting here not saying anything that he wouldn't probably admit uh, and, I, and, I, and I actually shouted after him after the mics were off you know what, what was all that about and we had a bit of a set too um, but yeah maybe I, although I think I always did and maybe sometimes to my detriment always did trying to maintain that control and it's not a not like a Machiavellian Type control. It's not, you know, something that you're acutely aware of or trying to do. Um, but I just think as long as you are, are trying as much as possible to control the narrative, if there's an obvious narrative there. Um, but, yeah, that's an interesting point about relinqu relinquishing control. Maybe I have done that um, without really thinking about it. But, um, yeah, I mean, stick that one away in my back pocket. It's a good show. Oh, well, yeah, you're welcome to it. Uh, when we're looking at the sort of other challenges, you know, keeping cool under pressure, technical difficulties, issues, you're standing there, am I live, am I not live, can you hear me? How important is it in that situation when at the time your whole world feels like what is going on, you can almost feel yourself getting redder, it's the nightmares are coming true. When you keep control, keep control of your own emotions in in that situation, how difficult is that? And and have you had any circumstances where 
you've really had to had to battle battle that. Yeah, um, I remember once having a complete mind blank, like a complete mind blank. Um, I can't really remember where I was. I think I may have been at Glen Eagles actually. Um, another golf story, and they always so you're wearing an earpiece, and they always say, "Okay, Chris, thirty seconds to you, um, ten seconds," and then you can hear the the, mm-hmm. the presenters asking the question. And you, quite often, the questions that they're asking, you know, what they're going to ask you more often than not. Um, and they asked me a question, and I had a complete mind blank. Oh, I, I, I think I forgot even where I was. Um, but it only lasted for like three seconds and then I picked it up again. Um, and thankfully, I've not had many of those. I have had um, situations where I've, I've you know, stumbled over words, or but nothing really, really bad. But you're right, there are, there are also times where um, there's people talking in your ear while you're talking and you have to try and sh- shut that out. And uh, sometimes you have, to, you have to carry on knowing there's every chance you're not on air anymore. Um, because I've seen lots of people, you've seen loads of blooper reels of people yeah. thinking they're off air and they're on air. Oh, um, so that, I think that just comes again with experience, to be honest. Um, always, if you're standing in front of a camera, assume that it's live. And if you've got a mic on, assume that's live as well. Yeah. And um, many people have been have been coy with that. But in terms of the nerves, I, I, still get, I still get a little bit of adrenaline from that, but nowhere near what I did. I think if you didn't get that adrenaline still, you would be in the wrong job. Um, I don't know. You should never become too blasé about it. Yeah. Um, but you do through experience, and I think also just knowing, knowing your subject. If you know your subject and you're happy to to chat, then you know that you can. You know, I've quite often had where we're on air, the producer saying, "Chris, can you fill for another forty seconds?" Yeah. You know, I'm not knowing that I have to. So, um, so you have to just sort of slow yourself down and and ramble a little bit. So, um. It comes with experience, but it's um, yeah, it can be, it can be certainly a a nervy one when it all goes wrong. Absolutely, we've talked a little bit about you know football, Scottish football, and your examples you've used with managers and things like that. But you're also mentioning golf and and, and other sporting events. How much more work is it, and harder mm. is it when you've got a big event? Where you covered the Commonwealth Games whilst they were in Glasgow. We've had the Scottish Open. We've had other golf competitions. There's been other sporting events going on that you've got to be over. I mean, is that does that? Do you just know that in those weeks you're just going to be flat out all the time, and it's wall to wall news about different stories, getting different stories, then reporting on it? Yeah, and do you know what? That's some of the most exciting stuff that I've done. Is you know covering Olympic Games. I covered the games in Rio. Um, covered them in Tokyo. I did. I've done quite a few Commonwealth Games and. The great thing about that is because you've covered a few, you know, just as you say, that for a couple of weeks, three weeks, sometimes a month, um, you're just consumed by every single day, morning to night. I mean, I was, when we were in Rio, um, I remember getting off the plane and going straight to work, wow. you know, and having, we had half a day off, went up to see Christ the Redeemer, and, and I like, remember running up, um, <laughs> and the rest of the time it was just just non-stop work. But I would never complain about it. It was just the best kind of work. You know, I, I love being busy. Um, in terms of the different challenges, I always found that, especially when I was, so before being, um, before I became sports news correspondent, I was a senior football reporter. And, and getting off getting off that football treadmill was was always 
um, quite a relief. And it was because you knew you were going to do something completely different. And, you know, I found myself going and, and covering things like cycling and swimming and athletics and events and, and sports that you don't really have a great knowledge about, to be honest. I mean, you've got a, a fairly general, broad uh, knowledge, but you don't have an in-depth knowledge. Uh, so that's, again, a real test that you have to try and get across things as quickly as possible. And I always found that a good challenge Um because in, in Scottish football, I kind of got to the stage where I felt as if I knew most things and knew that most things would work out and knew most of the faces involved. But it was always a challenge to try and get yourself across as much as, as you could these different events. And they were they were also very different to cover because there were really great stories. You know, you had athletes with really, really good stories, people who have been working for four years every single day for this one event, two events. And there was so much emotion attached to it. And actually, sometimes when you when you became cynical about um, reporting and maybe sometimes football, uh, it was good to go and cover these things because it gave you a real renewed sense of the power of sport. Um, and it was great to feel part of that. I, I loved it. I loved the Commonwealth Games as well. That was a similar kind of vibe. Mm. Um, but it was always nice to come back to football, I must admit, as well. I mean, when you're at these things, when you're over at the Olympics and you're, I mean, it's the world press that are there. So how much of a bigger buzz is that even behind the the performance aspect when you're in the press areas, when you're at the press conferences, when you're when you're surrounded and you've got literally press from all corners of the world? Do you, do you get a chance to interact and mingle with people? Or even sometimes are you starstruck? Are you sitting there going, oh my God, that's a, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so reporter. Is that is that something that happens in these situations? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think I've ever been starstruck by a reporter. Um, but you do get a little bit of a chance to mingle. Sometimes I'll quite often uh, interview a foreign journalist. I always find yeah. them quite interesting. Um, and yeah, I've got a, a, a contacts book full of um, journalists from Bulgaria and Singapore and various other places. So, uh, yeah, that is, and you're right, the scale of the broadcast centre at an Olympic Games is mind-boggling. You know, I'm sure we've, we've, we've done a few stories about that in itself. Um, but it's great because there's, there's a great buzz because of what I described about the fact that you're just constantly working. Everyone's doing the same. And there's a real energy about it. Um, and you and you kind of feed off that energy. Nobody's complaining. Everyone knows they're there. Everyone knows they're, they're, they're lucky to be there. Everyone, I think, um, gets that same buzz uh, because it is so charged, uh, especially given it's an Olympic Games or Commonwealth Games, these things that don't come along very often. Yeah. It's kind of the same if you go and cover like a Champions League final or um, you know Euros. You know, I think there's obvious an, an obvious excitement from the competitors, but there's a similar excitement from the journalists okay. because it's, it's it's a big deal for them as well. You know, it's great for their CV, oh, just as it for the sports people. So yeah, no, it's it's. It's a great thing to be part of, and I'm very lucky for that. When you're talking about the buzz and the excitement, now you're saying about when you're out these at these things like the Olympics or Commonwealth Games or big major sporting events, what about the buzz and excitement when a new story is starting to form and break and you're starting to feel there is something coming out, you've maybe heard a whisper, then there's the, there's more coming, and, and then, of course, it's a, just down to now. Is it still a, a race to try and be the exclusive news story do you feel part of that? And and when you're trying to do that, what's the process like when when a big big story is about to break and you've got to start 
getting your information, getting it all down, and then, as we talked about right at the beginning, formulating that story that you're going to report on? Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose in Olympic Games, uh, you know, some of, some of those stories would be around doping. I do remember a few doping stories in, in um, Rio, and when I worked at the Games there, I was working for, for Network BBC, so there was a lot of interest around that. There was a lot of interest around some security problems and um, there was various issues around the, the games. And yeah, there were times where you heard rumours of things happening. And and in terms of the in terms of that need to be first, yeah, there, there, of course there's a there's a there's an inbuilt um, part of you, I think, as a journalist that you know instinctively wants to be first, and it's a great feeling when you're first. There's no doubt it's it's a great feeling. But I think at the BBC. There's so much emphasis on being right um, that you know, as long as you're across it and, and you're right with the facts, then you know your bosses are happy. Yes, it's lovely to be right to be first, and it's it's a good good buzz. But um, you would formulate the story in, in in the same ways as you would for anything else. You know, you'd speak to press officers, you'd speak to chef de mission, you'd speak to any contacts that you've got in the in the camp itself. Um, and you have to the bigger the story. I mean, the bigger the story, I suppose, the more you have to check it, mm-hmm. and 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 that doesn't that doesn't sound as though that that there's a consistency, but that's the reality of it. You know, you're a, bit, a little bit more nervous um, about going with a story if it's really big, um, and yeah, that 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 brings its own nervousness. But I think as long as you do follow the the processes. Yeah. Um, speak to the right people. You get, you get a sense very quickly, and it's a, it's a, it's a very well trodden path for interviewers, for journalists. If they're going for a job, you know, th- this story breaks. What do you do? Yeah. Um, so uh, every journalist should know pretty quickly who to phone and what to do because that's a, that's an interview question that you'll definitely get at some point. Um, <laughs> but you become. You become, I think, it, again, like everything else, it, it comes with experience. But there is a there is an excitement around that for sure. I mean, you can feel a change in the mood yeah. from really exciting to oh, oh, something's happening here. I've heard whispers of something, and that 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 does happen for sure. And is that difficult to to be excited about something where you're knowing that it's maybe a negative story, but you're also excited in the sense that it's it's good. It's a it's a negative story, but it's good news if you know what I mean. When you're looking at it, going. Oh, this is this is a this could be a big story that could you know could ruin someone's career or it could damage someone's reputation or anything like that. And you're thinking, God, that that's tricky. But I tell you what, I need to get on front of that because I need to be the one that's able to to get that news out there as quickly as possible and get the best source of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that I genuinely and I certainly don't. I've never took any glee from that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are definitely stories that I've worked on. Um, stories that that I've done um, that have had a negative impact on on people's careers. There's no doubt about that. There's absolutely no doubt. Um, but as much as you are aware of the human side of that, you also understand that you've got a job to do. Um, you don't take any any glee from it. Um, but you, if if there's news value and editorial merit to it, then you have to do your job, you know. There's, there's been a few occasions where 
Um, stories have come out about footballers having gambling problems. I suppose that's maybe a good example of that. Um, and that's, I think, probably for me, not the kind of story that I would really want to be first on, to be honest. And maybe I'm being a bit moralistic there, I don't know. Um, but you have to tell the story. Mm. But you also have to be aware that, that these are people's lives, you know. Um, but again, you have to check it. Is, is there editorial merit? Is there public interest in it? Um, and that's an ever more great area these days. But um, I think you just have to trust your instincts on that, but never really take the glee. And I don't think journalists do. I really don't. I certainly don't think the, the people I work with, I don't think anyone really does take glee from people's downfall, no, more, mm. no matter what people think about journalists and think how monstrous we can be sometimes. Well, on, on that topic then, when you're going back to when you're interviewing somebody and you're saying, if you... It, like, you know, you're going through an interview process, and suddenly they drop, they drop something. They drop up, they drop something in there, and, it, and and you know that if I pick up on what they've just dropped in, that this is going to go down a completely different route, which might not be great for for them, but it would be almost wrong of me to not pick up on it. Is that is that something that's maybe happened before, and and is that something that is a tricky one to run? Yeah, it has happened before, and there was one particular time I remember. I think it was. Chris Commons. Chris Commons made a, a comment in a, a press conference. I can't remember the details. I wish I could. It was something to do with referees. Mm. And it was, he'd made some claim about referees being biased. Oh. It was, I remember going, right, okay. And I kind of followed up in, it. in, the, in the press officer at the time. It was quite a young press officer, and I wouldn't name them. But they, I don't think they picked up on it. And and we ran it, and I think, I think they did. Once they'd realised what happened, they'd asked us not to. Mm. Um, but I think editorially, you you know, that's just not fair. That's not what people would expect. Um, so we did, um, and it, it was a tricky time for him for that reason. Um, he probably spoke. Uh, he probably he was probably speaking from. He was probably, to be honest, I think speaking his truth at that point and what he felt. It's just that he probably didn't realise the repercussions of it. Um, I also remember a time where Charles Green, who was the the infamous um, chairman at Rangers for for a while, um, said something to me about the fact that that the governing bodies were sectarian or something, mm. and I knew it was going to, you know, <laughs> it was uh, it was going to be huge. It was going to light the the um, the touch paper. So. It, but you have to tell, you know, mm. if that's, you can't ask them, are you sure? You know, do you really want me to say that? Do you really want me to put that out? In fact, I think it was actually a live interview at the time, so we didn't really have the choice. Um, but there are times, um, there are times that you're interviewing and you, your ears prick up because you know that something's, they've said something that's going to make headlines, no doubt. Um, and as much as, again, you don't take a leaf from it, it's a good thing because you know there's, there's real editorial merit in it and it's, it's, interesting i think probably is the key thing well it comes back to like what you said knowing who's listening and and if you follow it from a from a fan's point of view the last place you want to be is sitting there in your car on the way back going oh, i wish i had actually asked about that because other people would have been sitting on the edge of their seats going you can't just let that go and that's it's, it's it's a hugely uh fascinating subject but we finish every podcast with um asking our guests what they think the three 
key fundamentals to good communication is. So in your environment, industry, and, and from what you've done in your career, what would you say the three sort of main key fundamentals are in communication? Um, it's a good question. I think I'd probably start with clarity. Um, I think understanding and being clear in what you want um, and in what you want from someone else and what you're trying to say um, and I remember actually on that subject, like the nicest email I ever received, and I don't get many. Um, I received an email once from from a man who said that that he wanted to thank me because he was um, mostly deaf, and he enjoyed my reports on TV because I really enunciate. I really use my mouth a lot. I didn't realize realize that I did that. And he wanted to thank me because he could always understand what I was saying. And I thought it was really nice. I've still got the email. I kept it. So I think clarity is really key for a number of reasons in terms of how you're putting yourself across and what you're trying to put across in communication. Um, clarity is key. I think um, listening is huge in communication. Um, and that might sound bizarre for some people, but I think... To be, to be a very good communicator, you also have to be a very good listener. You have to understand what people are saying um, and not just constantly think what you want to say, think about what you want to say or what you want them to think. Um, you'll get some of your best communication with people if you don't speak and you can actually listen to them. So I would say that. And I would also say, and it's similar to that, is empathy. Mm-hmm understanding people and 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 understanding what they want having a a self-awareness to understand what people are sometimes going through um and being sympathetic and understanding about that that doesn't mean to say you can't still do, do your job but there are lots of times where you have to be really empathetic with people um and it doesn't make you any less of a journalist. I think it makes you a better journalist if you can do that. Um, so I would say those, clarity, empathy, listening. Brilliant. Well, I'm really looking forward to listening back to this uh, this episode because I've really enjoyed the recording of it. Chris, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I've really enjoyed that. Thank you. Totally enjoyed it myself. Pleasure. Cheers.